Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. taconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, along with Chris Chimes. We got another great show with a superb guest, but we had a busy news week. Chris, if you'll push back from the gate and get us on our way, that'd be great. Hey, Ben, and hey to our listeners. Uh, you're right, it was a busy week, and Washington was where things were happening. First, on March 31st, President Biden unveiled a $2 trillion infrastructure plan that covers everything from repairing roads and bridges to installing 500,000 electric car charging stations, replacing lead water pipe systems, and building ubiquitous broadband capabilities. For aviation, there is more than $25 billion for airport infrastructure. It's an extremely ambitious plan that shows enormous vision but includes significant tax hikes and a little bit of social engineering. Ben, the Democratic leadership in the House has set a goal of passing the package by July 4th. What are you going to be watching for? This is a fantastically interesting kind of uh, plan, I think, Chris. Number one, I think our nation's infrastructure can use some help. And when it comes to aviation, money toward improving airports, maybe improving air traffic control itself, although the plan doesn't specifically say that, but adding runways, maybe even adding some new airports and congested space area is very exciting. I can't say I'm excited about the tax increases and what that means. I'm worried for American businesses, frankly, about our own competitiveness. If tax rates go back up to high 20s or so, what that means for some companies maybe wanting to send work offshore again, that wouldn't be good. But I'm expecting over the next month or two, there's going to be a lot of sausage making in Washington around what's really in this bill, how much of it is really infrastructure based versus like you said, social engineering based. And there will be groups trying to minimize that other groups trying to maximize that. So I think it's just going to be fascinating watching how this whole thing comes together. But in the end, if it means better roads, better broadband, and especially better aviation, real estate and access, there certainly is some good about this. You must be thinking a lot about this too, Chris. What do you think? Yeah, my guess is a few of these things, if not a lot of these things, are going to fall off in any kind of eventual bill. But as it relates to aviation, I, you know, if you read the fine print, a lot of this is about green technologies and reducing carbon emissions in addition to building new infrastructure. And so I, I think that's where the airport community is going to have to be driven or focused on with regard to how are these things going to improve carbon intensity, how it's going to reduce emissions, how is it going to make an airport more efficient, how are you going to move airplanes and people and cars and other things more efficiently. So it's not just about building things. And if a new runway is going to help with the efficiency of an airport, 
that's a good argument. But if it's growth for the sake of growth, I think the way the bill might end up being written, airports are going to have to think about things a little bit differently moving forward. That's a really good point. And you know, one of the ways to burn less fuel while still having people travel is more direct routing, less holding, less congested space, right? So that's why I think like improvements in the technology around air traffic control, aircraft routing, things like that, ideally would be part of this bill because it's a way for people to get everywhere they want to go in less time, burning less fuel. I agree completely. And Ultimately, a lot of airport construction is about efficiencies. I think it's just going to have to be, how do you tell that story and how do you quantify these things to uh, pass the test? I just hope that the tax increases aren't so high that it reduces the amount of business travel just because there's less business as a result. These things are such a balance. We have to have big plans to do things like we obviously, you know, decades ago, We couldn't have gone to the moon unless we said we were going to get there and make those kind of big plans. So government is about big plans, but there's also balance of growing the economy and being good for the environment and everything. So these big plans have all this kind of balancing in them. And I hope this one comes out well balanced. Yeah, this isn't going to be a slam dunk by any means. And uh, we'll have to all watch the debate over the next few months. Absolutely. Well, we've got more news to cover, plus a great guest coming up. But Airlines Confidential wants to thank our newest sponsor, Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is driving the next generation of more sustainable travel. This revolutionary geared turbofan engine is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people people farther and with less fuel, just like we were talking about, and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Ben, uh, the other news item of note uh, over the past week was the Centers for Disease Control here in the U.S. providing some cautious but positive guidance about traveling if you've been vaccinated. Basically, the CDC lifted certain testing and self-quarantine requirements but the agency continues to discourage non-essential travel, citing a sustained rise in cases and hospitalizations, and maintains all guidance regarding wearing masks and physical distancing. But families who have been vaccinated can travel to see each other, for example, and get together. The CDC updated its website on this past Friday to reflect these latest scientific evidence-based recommendations, writing that, quote, people who are fully vaccinated with an FDA-authorized vaccine can travel safely within the United States. But much to the disappointment of industry trade groups here in the U.S., the CDC did not lift travel restrictions barring the entry of most non-U.S. citizens from places including China, Brazil, South Africa, and parts of Europe. It will continue to require airline passengers entering the U.S. to get a test within three days of their departure and show proof of a negative result before boarding. So Ben, how do you rank this on the progress scale? Well, if progress is having travel unrestricted by the pandemic, I'd say we move forward a little bit, but have a long way to go. That's my sense. I was happy with this new notice, Chris, because it does move things forward a bit. One of the things that really confused me about their initial advice, which we talked about on the podcast, was it basically implied that 
you know, if you and I live 10 miles apart and we're both vaccinated, one of us shouldn't drive to the other's house for dinner, right? It's that you should not travel. Now they're saying, okay, that was kind of wrong. If you're fully vaccinated, you can travel safely, but we still don't want you to do it because we know there's all these strains of new viruses going on. And the best thing is to just keep people distance for a while longer. And I get that science, but it's frustrating, I think. And, you know, we're heading into a point now, it's April, families are starting to think about what are we going to do this summer? So when they look at this advice, do they think, okay, we can take that trip this summer or we really need to wait longer? And I'm not sure how that's going to be interpreted. There's been positive news in the last week around travel, more people traveling, and that's been encouraging and obviously good news about more vaccines rolling out. So all things are moving in the right direction. And I want to feel really more bullish about this summer as a travel period. This CDC advice helps a little bit on that, but I still get the sense that we're not out of this woods anywhere closely yet and we got a ways to go. And I just hope it doesn't take through the whole summer to get there. Yeah, I mean, as our listeners know, when I've talked about it, I work in the cruise sector right now, and you know, we continue to be disappointed by being treated separately from the rest of travel. So we were pleasantly surprised somewhat, kind of sort of, with the initial CDC guidance about some travel is, is viable, but they're still treating crews differently from the rest of travel. And our position is if it's safe to get on an airplane or go to Disney World or stay at a resort, it's safe to cruise with the extra precautions we're taking. So I, I think the CDC is trying to get there, but there's just so many other factors they're, they're working through. Thanks to our friends at TA Connections, Travel Alliance and Hotel Connections have come together to become TA Connections, paving the way for a new chapter in crew logistics management. Learn more at taconnections.com. That's taconnections.com, a fleet core company the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. You're listening to Airlines Confidential. Chris, I'm pleased to move us along to our next segment. We talk a lot about low-cost carriers on this podcast, so we're going to go right to the source with one of the most successful executives in that space. It's my pleasure to welcome Declan Ryan, one of the co-founders and former CEO of Ryanair and all-around great guy. Declan, Thanks for having me, uh, guys. I I look forward to the discussion. Awesome. Well, we can't begin to give you the proper introduction you deserve. So how about if we ask you to tell us a bit about yourself and your lifelong interest in aviation? Okay. I I got addicted to aviation um, uh, in the early days of Ryanair. And it took us about 100 years to go public, or it felt like 100 years to go public. But we went public in 97. Uh, We had TPG, uh, David Bonderman, as investors. It was a very successful float. And I stayed around for about another 10 years, but uh, then it became very boring, um, as large companies do. And I decided to uh, see if we could bring the model uh, in different parts of the world. We did a very successful joint venture with uh, SIA in Singapore called Tiger. We did a mezzanine deal with uh, the great uh, Mari Gallagher in um, Allegiant. Uh, We did a a JV in Mexico that was also very successful called Viva Aerobus. 
And uh, then uh, about nine years ago, uh, eight or nine years ago, uh, we started the um, investment in uh, Viva Air down in Colombia. It was originally Viva Colombia and Viva Peru. But as you know yourself, guys, when an airline gets to a certain size, you don't want to be painting airplanes with different colors on it and all that kind of stuff. So we, 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 uh, we, we, we now just call it Viva Air. And we've been in Colombia, as I said, uh, the guts of eight to nine years. Well, that's an impressive list of investments, Declan, and a real successful one, too. Must make you one of the most successful people investing, if not the most, in the low-cost airline space. Why do you think low-cost airlines are the best investments in airlines? Well, first of all, I think Bill Frankie would shoot you uh, for saying that, Uh, (laughs) um, because Bill has been incredibly successful. He probably won't want to be reminded about his... uh, mistakes in Russia and in Indonesia. But listen, we all make mistakes. I think we stick to our model to try to answer your question. I like to think we don't have arrogance, guys, where uh, what works in Europe with Ryanair necessarily works in Colombia. And so if you take that approach, you take the approach that you, you know, it's a bit like Walmart or Google or Amazon. If you take the approach that the principles of low cost are the important bits, uh, and then you adapt to the local marketplace. So, Declan, we don't want to ask you to give away maybe something you're working on, but are, are there areas of the world you think that they've yet to kind of seen a truly successful ultra low cost carrier, and where you think they might be successful? Chris, we'd love to do one in Africa. First of all, I don't think the GDP numbers like. Somebody once described us, Chris, as people who are uh, followers and monitors of people going into middle class around the world. And that'd be kind of correct. I just don't think you have the environment in somewhere like Africa to make it happen. And the terrible irony and pity about that, Chris, is, you know, th- as we all know, those are nations who, uh, and continents who, who badly need low fares. That's a great point, Declan. You sort of broached this in your last answer, but go into this in a little more detail. What have you learned about running airlines all across the globe? What is the same and what really needs to be different, either by geography or by politics? Um, So you have to have countries that are accepting to uh, Western brands. And and from your TACA days, uh, Ben, you would know uh, the region. Colombia is very pro-US, uh, which really helps uh, because, you know, some of the brands down there are very uh, US focused and centric. Um, the other things about Colombia are it's twice the size of France. So it's a big country and they have the largest middle class population in the region. And the government, when we started uh, under President uh, Santos, was very pro competition and uh, you can have 100% foreign ownership in Colombia. So that really helps. And listen, Avianca has been around for a million years. So, you know, there's a real culture of, uh, you know, good people and understanding um, uh, the whole issue with regard. Like one of our busiest routes is between Bogota and Medellin guys. And, you know, it's nine hours by road and 20 minute, 28 minute flight. So they they get (laughs) why they need uh, airlines in Colombia. Declan, uh, we talk a lot amongst each other here, and then a lot of our listeners write in and 
ask similar questions about ultra low cost carriers and long haul operations, which don't seem to kind of stitch together very well. And whether you look at WOW or Norwegian and all those that came before them, is there some scenario you see where long haul low cost works? I, I don't. And I heard your podcast last week, guys. And uh, I really have to say, I agree with you. Um, I just don't see it. I think it was you, particularly Chris, who made the point that you didn't think it would work. I don't think it will work. I think uh, within four hours, uh, people will be fine on a high density, uh, no frills operation. And also the reason is the legacy guys, you know, they're not stupid. And, you know, British Airways and Lufthansa and Avianca, they're all capable of selling, you know, low seats, low cost seats. The fares will be, you know, they'll match your fares just for marketing purposes. So I, I, I don't see it um, as a, a model that can work for a long haul. But, you know, I've been wrong so many times in life. I might be proven wrong, but you won't see me investing in it. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, can I, I just, definitely... can I make a point, Ben? I had a bit of fun uh, the other day listening to your podcast, and I did a little bit of maths about it afterwards, about Frontier and their new seat. And uh, their new seat's quite interesting. It's about uh, eight kilos, so it's about 20% lower lower weight than the seats we have in the uh, 320 Neos and so on. And then kind of a bit of devilment kicked in, maybe because I was Irish and it was Easter time or whatever. I was saying, you know what? The public always want us to be green and emissions and so on. And I looked up the average weight of an American male and it's about 200 pounds. So I said to myself, <laughs> any chance they could help us with the 20% that we might need? <laughs> I don't think I'll be winning popularity awards, but uh, it's an interesting thought, you know, the way the public give out to you and uh, they never focus on their own weight. Well, I'm just glad that uh, we can tell advertisers that Declan Ryan listens to our podcast. So uh, thank yes, you for that. That's right. Of course I do. It's very good. Guys. Well, Declan, you have a very famous last name in the aviation world. Does this help you, cause you problems or both? Um. I look at it in two different ways. One with regard to my kids, and now they're all grown up and 10 times better than I am and so on. I think when you have a young family and there's a pile of airplanes flying around Europe, you have to be really careful with your kids. Uh, where we come from in Ireland, uh, the, it's like Smith in the US. So there's an expression, once a Ryan, once a rogue. Listen, <laughs> you know, on a serious basis, really proud of what Tony did. And it's very interesting what's happening in aircraft leasing these days. And, you know, we all are proud of our surnames, no matter, you know, where it comes from and, and, you know, how much it's used and so on. I think what it really does is it helps with your bullshit detector. You know, you, you will know somebody from an investment bank a mile away because you know what they're up to and so on. But, you know, to be serious about it, of course, uh, it, it, it's uh, something I'm very proud of. But it's not something I wake up in the morning and saying, you know, I don't hop out of the bed like uh, Cinderella and say, "Thank God I'm a Ryan." I, I, you know, I, I just, I just, I just focus on the successes and, uh, you know, what's the great saying in life? You know, uh, a few words in uh, in in, uh, in defeat, even fewer words in victory. So that's how I kind of feel about it. For those of us uh, in travel, whether you're in aviation or some other aspect of travel, uh, obviously we're just trying to power through this horrible situation with the pandemic and get to the other side. What do you see forever changing uh, as the result of this well, pandemic? I like to localize it. Very interestingly, in our region, 
the two big boys, Latam and uh, Avianca, entered Chapter 11. Avianca entered it because they screwed up the business. Uh, Latam, not as much so. Uh, Latam were very opportunistic and saw an opportunity to reduce their costs, particularly with uh, the suppliers and the lessors and so on. I do think, you know, somebody described it to me the other day, a friend of mine described it, Chris, as you get out of the habit of things. Like I'm always trying to keep fit and sometimes you break the habit because you travel or something happens and so on. I wonder is traveling a habit and that will break out of the habit a little bit. I'm not being negative. I'm not saying that we're not going to travel again, but I just think is it a habit forming event for people? And, uh, you know, if you're if you're low cost and flying domestic, I wouldn't lose any sleep. And look at the IPOs of uh, the guys in Frontier and Sun Country, the way that market understands it, and so on. I'd be a lot more worried, Chris, if I was in Lufthansa shoes or British Airways shoes or Avianca's shoes, because I, I think the habit might have been broken. That's a fantastic way to think about it, Deck. And I've never even thought about it that way of a habit of traveling and whether that's likely to change. Certainly the businesses who pay for travel are going to look to whether they can save costs by pushing things to technology or doing things differently. And I could see individuals saying for safety reasons or for my own health, I might want to travel less often, but I never thought about it about breaking a habit. That's a real creative way, yeah. interesting way to think about yeah, it. Yeah, Ben, I'm not too sure it's correct, but it's certainly worth a bit of thought. You and I and Chris have all been meetings where, you know, you can't take away the importance of meeting people face to face. You might do it less now, but, you know, Chris, you know, or Ben, if one of your families have a grievance, you really don't, you know, use the opportunity on Zoom to give your apologies and your condolences and, you know, uh, talk about the real things in life. You will do it face to face. You'll definitely do it face to face. I just think that that part of human nature, like we're all social animals. So, you know, I, I think if you were working for, I don't know, Intel in the States, you know, and you were traveling, let's say once a month, I think that will be reduced, but I don't think it will, I don't think it will stop. And I think there's an element guys of, there's a kind of come to Jesus a moment for all of us where we just say, the minute I can start traveling again, I'm going to go see my girlfriend or my mom or I'm just dying to go to the beach so you know there's going to be push and pull um, but uh, I certainly wouldn't like to be in the legacy business class uh, arena yeah I mean the the investment community is certainly banking on some level of pent-up demand on the leisure side but I think as you point out it's the business side of travel that's the unknown and you know Zoom calls are great for maintaining relationships, but I'm not sure they're great for building or making relationships. So if, if you're trying to buy new seats for uh, for one of your airlines, you're probably not going to do it with a provider you've never met. And so I think that's kind of where do these things meet and where's the equilibrium? Well, Declan, this has been a real pleasure. And I know our listeners are going to really enjoy this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us today, sharing your insights and outlooks. And and we wish you the best of luck in Irelandia's current and future investments. You've been so great for this industry and look to see a lot more from you and your team. You're very kind. And thank you, guys. Thanks for your time, Declan. This has been great. We'll be back with more Airlines Confidential in a minute. 
But first, we'd like to thank Clear. Travel with confidence with Clear. Touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports nationwide, moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at www.clearme.com slash airlines. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. Chris, I really enjoyed that talk with Declan. He's got some great insights, doesn't he? Yeah, Ben, he was great. I think our listeners are going to enjoy that. And as I monitor the mailbag, it looks like our listeners are getting into the guest programming. We're even starting to get some requests and suggestions for future guests. So I feel like a DJ or a piano bar singer uh, taking requests. Uh, but we're glad our listeners are enjoying the addition to the format. And we appreciate your ideas. And we'll certainly work on them. We also got several comments about our discussion last week regarding the scope negotiations between American Airlines and the Allied Pilots Association. This note from Mike was very representative of the sentiment. Hello, Ben and Chris. I wanted to write with a little anecdote about scope. Chris was right. It is the holy grail of any pilot collective bargaining agreement. Shortly after the September 11 attacks, Rakesh Gangwal notably stated that the 9-11 attacks, quote, had opened certain doors to us that were previously closed. Rakesh was the CEO of U.S. Airways at that time. I'm sure most of our listeners remember. Those doors were the scope clause, restricting the number and size of regional jets that could be flown by U.S. Airways partners. The key, as it turned out, was force majeure language in the pilot contract. And soon enough, RJ flying had displaced significant mainline flying, which led to many furloughs, myself included. Between the aftermath of 9-11 and the extremely poorly timed change from age 60 to age 65 retirement, many of us were on furlough for more than seven years. Pilots hired in their 20s before 9-11 might now not see a captain's seat until the last 10 or 15 years of their careers. So hopefully that can add a little color to why airline pilots are so reticent to even entertain the possibility of scope relief. The wounds are still too far fresh for many of us. Keep up the good work. I enjoy the podcast. Chris, while we're on the subject of pilots and furloughs, we also got a phone question in from Jordan. Let's play that tape. Hey, guys. This is Jordan. I'm a pilot for an airline up in the Pacific Northwest. You can take your guess on what that might be. Love the show. Been listening to it for a long time. Actually, I had a question regarding what I, we saw happen during the pandemic, during uh, most airlines at least, offering a sort of leave in lieu of furlough for a lot of the labor groups. I know we saw that where I work. A lot of my friends at other carriers saw something similar of an option of taking a reduced paycheck with insurance and going on leave rather than furloughing. I just wonder if you guys have any pulse on whether that's maybe the new normal going forward or furloughs are going to be seen when economic crisis hits the industry. From my point of view, it seems like a good thing where you can actually get some of the senior pilots, the higher paid pilots, to take these leads and save a lot more money and jobs. And so you don't just have to cut a bunch of junior guys off the bottom. But interested to hear you guys' thoughts. Thanks. 
Jordan, thanks for the question. And Mike as well for the comments uh, about scope. I, I wish uh, we had invested in scope luggage tags years ago, but uh, certainly that continues to be an emotional issue like we talked about. And e even though Mike's referring to something from right after 9-11, he also references it's still fresh. And so it, it's a reminder that 20 years is not uh, history for a lot of our pilots. So in any way, Jordan, thanks for the question. Um, we did see some creative things over the past year, including this leave of absence concept you mentioned, kind of like a voluntary furlough sweetened with pay. Ben, I spoke to one of our former colleagues, Jerry Glass, about this, and he thinks we could see more of it used more often if it's crafted in a way that senior employees will take it. In combination with wide body retirements, which of course are the higher paying positions, it could result in considerable savings and it's a win-win. If the aircraft stay in service, the savings will be lower because you still have to train pilots to replace those who take the leave. So then you get into the pilot training churn that we've talked about previously as well. But Jordan, overall, I think it's a concept that uh, is going to resurface when it makes sense. I, I think the danger is that isn't always going to make sense. And so we should manage expectations about how and when it's used uh, as the proper incentive. But I don't think I don't think anyone can come to the table, certainly from a union perspective, and put leave of absence on the table right away if it's not going to make sense in the, in the context of goals to meet savings uh, targets. I think that's right, Chris. But I have to say, I really what I really like about this approach is that you know, everybody's at different places in their lives at different times. And there may be times that some people it's easier for them or maybe even better for their life to take some time off, whereas others it's particularly difficult because of things they might be going through. And the nice thing about this is it lets people choose, you know, I can take the next year off because of things going on in my life that works, maybe even helps me versus I really need to keep working because of other reasons, rather than just say you're on furlough because of where you are in the seniority list, if they can allow individuals to make that call for themselves. And like you say, that ends up meeting the economic conditions that have to be met to make the savings in question. That really ends up being a win-win if it can work that way. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, again, one of those moments when management and labor can come together and hammer these things out. I think a lot of constructive things happen when both sides are working towards a solution. Ben, uh, we got a thoughtful two-part question from Mark in Annapolis about masks. Mark, in the interest of time, I took a crack at editing your email a bit, so I hope I do it justice. Hey, Ben and Chris, I've got questions about the federal mask mandate and the apparent confusion out there as more and more people begin to travel again. I was on a flight this evening where upon arrival, the airline's agents and state police boarded to remove a family. There are almost endless announcements made in the airport and during the boarding process about this requirement. And again, once on board the plane, I support the mask requirement given where we are today in terms of virus infections and vaccine distribution. But there are two concerns that come to mind. The first is the discussion among fellow passengers after watching this family be removed from the flight about the terms used that this mask requirement is, quote, law. The question is this, is a presidential executive order law? If so, I think the traveling public needs to understand this better, and I find myself being a little confused about it as well. What's the best way to do that? The second concern is the policing and consistency of enforcement. 
I have witnessed some airline employees be more vigilant than others with regard to the mask requirement, both on the plane and at the gate. And in the same way, some in the past were more vigilant with airline policies over things like carry-on bag sizes allowed on a plane. Thanks for considering these issues and giving us listeners your thoughts on the topic. I think these are two great questions, Chris, around very important issues. On the issue of an executive order, clearly, I think what President Biden wanted to do was mandate mask wearing in lots of places, but recognize that his authority was limited and could do it on federal grounds and in some other areas. I'm sure our listeners may know, I don't know if that mandate is law on board an airplane. I know individual airlines have said you have to wear a mask or we're not going to allow you to fly. That's not law. That's the airline policy. I'm not sure that the mandate that came from President Biden extends to inside the airplane. I'm not sure about that. But I also think that it gets to an airline's requirement to really be clear about how to deal with these kind of conflicts. No one likes conflict, especially on board an airplane, and it puts flight attendants in a difficult and potentially dangerous situation to be confronting people with things. But use of the word law, if it's not law, as opposed to it's our policy or we require masks to be worn on the plane, that's better language than it's the law, I think. But it may be the law. I think the second issue that Mark raises about policing and consistency is the bigger issue. And this is tough in everything about the airlines. It's tough in collecting bag fees. It's tough in enforcing sizing limitations and how much you can bring on board and how big can your bag be to check and all kinds of things. And again, it puts airline workers flight attendants, airport workers, in responsible for sort of policing behavior. That's a difficult position to put them in. So when you put them in that position, it has to be very, very clear what the rules are and what their abilities to manage behavior are. So I think when the airlines have been very clear about you require masks on board, Even though it's going to be difficult, I think it's important that flight attendants enforce that by saying it's our policy, even if it sort of creates an uncomfortable thing. And I realize that might put them in an uncomfortable position and maybe two should have to do it at a time and you don't want to have difficult situations on board. I just hope that we're far enough along as a country that by the time people get on an airplane right now, they're not looking to have a fight about the mask. They should be wearing the mask. I probably didn't do justice to either of these two questions, Chris. Maybe you can help. Well, I'm going to correct you a bit in that um, generally, well, not generally, executive orders that are legal are considered the same as uh, legislation as, as far as legal impact or the law. So in, in this case, President Biden's executive order with regard to masks on federal property has the force of law. And uh, uh, airline and federal airspace is under that jurisdiction. That, that's how they crafted that. And I think that airlines wanted that uh, direct executive order to give them a little bit of teeth so that their personnel had a little more ability to enforce the guidelines by pointing to it's the law. So I, I would consider it the law. As it relates to 
the inconsistency, if you will, of the enforcement, again, that's part of human nature. As you pointed out, it's something airlines and all kinds of companies struggle with. You know, I recall years ago, Ben, when we were at US Airways and uh, introduced kiosks for check-in, there was a lot of uproar from our very frequent flyers about this. And as you as you question them, some of them didn't like the kiosk because they couldn't game the kiosk like they could uh, some of our agents who didn't charge a bag fee or upgraded them without warranting it or whatever else when they saw one of their regular flyers in a small market. And so there's always ways to kind of go around the system when it involves humans because, again, people want to be nice. We see passengers. We see regular passengers. We might sneak them a couple extra mini liquor bottles or whatever it might be because we recognize their loyalty and we're trying to do nice things. But in in this case, we have to be consistent with regard to uh, wearing masks. That's the policy under the executive order. That's the law. And it starts at the top. You know, unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of uh, elected officials who have been nabbed for not wearing masks as well. So, you know, it, it's a tough question that has been raised. Uh, hopefully, it won't be one we're going to have to be dealing with a year from now. But it, it certainly is a difficult one for airlines to kind of carry this responsibility. And most of them are doing it very, very well most of the time. But sometimes it's not very elegant. You're right, Chris. And this gets back to what we were talking about with the CDC guidance too. You know, my wife, who is vaccinated, out of frustration the other day, got back from a run and said, I wish I could just tattoo a big V on my forehead so people would know I'm vaccinated because she was out for a run outdoors, didn't wear a mask. She was never near any people, but apparently got a couple of, you know, looks of like, why aren't you wearing your mask while you're running? (laughs) And so I get that frustration. And so the CDC guidance that, look, you can travel when you're vaccinated, but you still need to wear a mask. You still need to wash your hands. You still need to be conscious of this. We're in such a difficult time now where more people are getting vaccinated, more people are thinking they have more freedoms to either wear masks or not and things like that. But on the airplanes, you wear the mask, right? And that law, like you said, does help flight attendants and others sort of enforce a little bit better. Finer Wine is next, and it's brought to you by the specialty finance and investment banking firm of Seabury Capital Group, boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, and financial services and technologies. Seabury Capital Group's award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at Seabury Capital. That's S-E-A-B-U-R-Y Capital.com. Ben, our finer wine is from Jeff in Orange, New Jersey. Guys, I have several vouchers from canceled flights early in the pandemic last year that are set to expire. I haven't been on a plane since last February, and I'm at least six weeks away from being fully vaccinated to even think about getting back on a plane. I've asked two different airlines about getting the voucher deadlines extended or allowing me to use them for travel for my kids, and I've been turned down. I was under the impression that airlines would need to do more to entice their passengers to come back after this pandemic. It feels like making these vouchers more flexible is an easy way to accommodate airline passengers after they just got billions more dollars of relief aid. 
This is a tough one, Chris. I want to think that this is fine and not really a whine in the sense that his intent seems right. Look, I can't travel yet. I'm not vaccinated. The CDC is telling me I shouldn't travel yet since I'm not vaccinated, right? And yet I've got these vouchers expiring. Should I just lose the money or should I travel when I'm not supposed to? So in that sense, I, I think it's I think it's not a whine. Airlines extended these vouchers. I'm not sure if there was any point along when they could have been extended. I have a personal situation, Chris, where I have a voucher from an airline that is going to end before I can use it. They told me this airline, which is Southwest, I don't mind saying, right? They told me that um, I should call literally in the week that it's going to expire and tell them the situation. And they said, at that point, we're likely to extend it. So I don't know if that would work for you or not, Jeff. But in general, I agree that he got the voucher with a certain time frame. It didn't look like he just forgot about it or didn't want to travel, but he really couldn't yet travel. So in that sense, I don't think this is a whine at all. Yeah, I agree, Ben. Uh, and when these vouchers were you know, initially offered back in you know last March or April, I don't think anybody knew we'd still be sitting here a year later, really not that much farther along. So, and, and I don't, I really, frankly, don't get the call us back near the deadline. I mean, it would just be so much easier just to kind of say all vouchers add, you know, six months to the deadline, just make it simple for everyone. And instead of encouraging people to kind of keep checking. So we're on final approach for this week's show, but a reminder that we welcome your feedback, comments, and questions. Our phone number where you can leave a comment or question is 202-964-0177, or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Well, Chris, I'd like to close with my shout out to everyone who's traveled for the first time since the pandemic in the last week or so. Last week, the TSA processed 1.6 million people in a single day for the first time since the pandemic started. So clearly some more people are traveling. Not as many as flew two years ago, but we're moving up. United also announced they're hiring 300 more pilots because of what they see as good demand. Americans spoke very positively about their leisure bookings and how they're moving up. So it looks like that airlines are feeling more positive about a really strong summer. That means at least some people are traveling, maybe for the first time. And that's who I want to shout out to. Go for it. Hope you had a great trip. And, and I'm going to stick my neck out of just a bit and uh, give my shout out to a couple of airline CEOs who have stuck their neck out. And that's Ed Bastian and Doug Parker, a Delta and American for stepping into this uh, voting rights debate a bit. I know it's controversial. I know there's a lot of emotion on both sides of this, but I just think it's important for airlines, like other major companies, to uh, engage in public debate. And that's what they're doing. They shouldn't be criticized for engaging in the public debate. Uh, they, they can't, uh, at the end of the day, decide the outcome, that's for elected officials, but certainly uh, executives um, and all of us have a reason to want to be part of this discussion. And with that, thanks for joining us on Airlines Confidential. Look forward to seeing you all next week. 
This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.